Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring the deeper mysteries of life. My name is Dom Fay. I'm joined by Sue Wilton as always. Nice to have you here, Sue. Always good to be here. And we've made a bit of a road trip on the podcast this week. Uh, we are in Byron Bay at the Byron Writers Festival and joined by a very special guest. Uh, my favourite author, Matt Haig, has made time for the podcast. Wow, I'm here to disappoint you in, in real time. <laughs> yeah, let the disillusionment begin. No, it's amazing. Byron is incredible. I mean, all of Australia is kind of like a fantasy to British people, but <laughs> starting off in Byron Bay is a good place to get get over my jet lag. Well, like it's it's quite a quite a thrill to meet you in Byron, considering um, your novel How to Stop Time. Yes. Uh, a large part of that takes place in Byron. I know, so it's excruciating now. And I because I I, I I wrote that um, as I wrote a lot of that book about locations I hadn't actually been to. Right. So. I was just kicking myself out all the time. I was calling it Byron Bay when I should have just been having everyone say Byron um, for one thing. And um, yeah, Wikipedia can only get you so far in life. And um, So this is your uh, first time at, in Byron? Yeah, I've been to Australia before, but it's always I've just been always confined to Sydney, uh, unfortunately. But this is amazing, yeah. Is it what you expected when you wrote about it? Kind of. It's got that slightly, uh, you know, that laid back surfer... Slightly bohemian, slightly little dash of hitchhiker vibe. <laughs> yeah, you know, lots of lush surroundings and yeah, it's beautiful, the lighthouse and all of that. Yeah, it, it's a, I'd imagine if you stayed here for a while, you'd eventually, eventually start totally relaxing. But as mm. I'm someone who's sort of like highly up there with my stress, sometimes I find it almost too much. It's almost too much relaxation. <laughs> I need a little bit of a city yeah. um, caffeinated vibe. But no, this is great. The transition I, zone but, or something. Yeah, the transition zone. <laughs> yeah, that's it. A small town moving <laughs> to Byron. Yes. Um, well, Matt, look, what I love about your books and have uh, for some time since I stumbled across a, a copy of The Humans in a Mulaney bookstore in the Sunshine Coast ah, okay. and, uh, and loved it is uh, you have such a, a moving and insightful way of putting into words um, I guess the human experience and uh, uh, today we are going to discuss some of the themes you bring up in your latest book a non-fiction piece notes on a nervous planet um, I, I'm just wondering where this I guess this insight into what it means to be a human first came for you when you first started feeling like you were able to maybe put language to human experiences that you hadn't heard or that other people weren't able to articulate um, well I don't know. I mean, I, I've been writing books since I was um, 26, but I think that book you mentioned there, The Humans, that was the first book I wrote and of mine, and I'd written many before that, that I, um, I felt like I was truly understanding myself as a writer and what I wanted to do. Um, before that, my novels were very dark quite bleak I wrote a book called The Possession of Mr. Cave which I actually warn people not to read because it's actually <laughs> which my publishers don't like very much but um, it's essentially that you know I, I, everyone dies and it, 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 I used to think that the sort of job of a writer or a novelist is to sort of reflect all the bleakness and misery of the world and put it on the page and it's like that's fine but I got to an age where I, I just thought I want to try and do something a bit more useful and, you know, try and find within the darkness and within all the sort of crap of life to actually find some optimism, you mm. know, to actually find a reason um, to be here and stuff. And I th I feel like, you know, I, I suppose I'm slightly philosophical, but that comes out of my experience of 
mental illness and depression and 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 those things actually sort of make philosophers of everybody because you're just asking like literally why am i here and what am i doing here and what's the point of everything and so i suppose i try and answer those bleak depressive questions through a a sort of trying to find an authentic optimism about being a human Mm. I think um, many people who, who struggle with those things can be turned quite bitter and, um, and quite jaded about the world or, yes. or just numbed to it completely. What you've done is the much rarer thing, you know, I guess that all the great artists can do, which is transform it into a, uh, a, a beauty of sorts. You kind of come through it and you see a, a beauty. Um, uh, maybe as a starting point in this conversation, can you just speak briefly about that struggle with mental health, where that began and what that, that journey's been for you? Yeah, when I was 24 years old, I had what would be, would have once been called a nervous breakdown, basically. Like, I, I you know, I had everything. I had the whole smorgasbord of panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, depression, little bits of OCD as well. And um, I was in a real state for three years. I was agoraphobic. I had sort of separation anxiety from a partner, Andrea. I, I was... Uh, a total mess and a suicidal one and I I very much thought my you know I'm 43 years old now and I very much didn't believe I'd ever reach that age and I didn't believe I'd get better or better to a considerable degree and um, yeah it, it's been quite an intense sort of ride to get here uh, but in a very very strange way you know if you were asked the sort of famous question if you could press a button not to have experienced any of that would I press it at times like this when I'm not deeply ill or anything I'd always say no I'm totally sort of almost grateful for it I think it changed me as a person it made me find myself as a person not the illness itself but the recovery from the illness and it's made me um grateful for things I wasn't grateful before when I was a young man under the age of 24 you know to be happy I always needed the sort of most intense experiences you know my idea of happiness was sort of like always extreme like the loud rock concert or you know getting out of my head or um, you know having the most intense time even food you know it had to be the spiciest meal or whatever it was the edgiest novel and um, I, I I appreciate sort of neutrality more. I appreciate just being, you know, the, you know, rather than always having to do something intense. Yeah, you did mention that you feel this has made a philosopher out of you, and um, I suppose you could call your your new book Notes on a Nervous Planet a philosophy book of sorts. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily. I mean, I feel that might give it a sort of too grander vibe, <laughs> but uh, it, it's very much. I, I write in a kind of a chatty casual way i mean what i'm trying to do with the two books about mental health the reasons to stay alive and the new one notes on a nervous planet is almost the reader i have in mind is someone who is very much like me at the age of 24 when i'd have actually struggled to read much at all so i make it as accessible as possible i have lots of lists short chapters i avoid academic language I, I i believe that you you know this the aim of a writer shouldn't be to complicate things it should be take the complications and, and make them as accessible as you can and i feel like you know a lot can be done to sort of simplify things and especially with mental health where people one of the things that keeps you in a bad place sometimes is that feeling of being 
misunderstood. And I don't want to add to that. So what I'm trying to do is articulate as clearly and simply as possible, you know, what it feels like, what the solutions were for me, what they might be for other people, what research is telling us now, and do it all as simply as possible. Because a lot of the readers of these books aren't necessarily people who are... Uh, mentally ill but they're people who want to understand people who are and Mm. you know to offer that kind of window and transparency on someone in that bad place sure i actually think about having just read notes on a nervous planet this week i thought you you bring a really clear lens to what our condition is it was a, a really clear lens about human condition our cultural and social condition that we're in and I really appreciated that I, I, like it was a whole the lists all contributed to, to me going yes yes that too yeah that's it you know and, and actually a lot of the time I don't think we all do understand what's having an effect on us and I think that was one of several of the gifts of that book is mm. that it gives us that clear picture of of what is impacting us what is making us unwell thank you I mean yeah I mean that's what I was trying trying to do because a, a lot of it I'm not inventing the wheel here a lot of this stuff is out there anyway but I feel like we, we definitely need reminding that our health whether it's mental or physical you know it's affected by how we live and what we do to ourselves and we're, we're used to that in the context of physical health but in the context of mental health um, we're, we're very vague about it and we're not very clear and, and this book for me firstly and for other people hopefully too I was trying to sort of remind myself and get that clarity of how I live and how that affects me because we are all changing the way we live and work and communicate and fall in love and all of these things with the modern sort of technological age we're in and things you know everything whether it's environment politics whatever is changing we're in the state of flux and that's also having a psychological dimension and that's what I'm trying to talk about there. I've heard you uh, speak on this before. You mentioned that it's uh, even if the change is a good change, yeah. it is still uh, it can still mess us around a bit. Yeah. It can still be a traumatic experience. That it it's not you necessarily going out and saying that the technological advances are bad for humanity, yeah. but just that they are change. No, absolutely, and we and also that we we focus very much on progress in technological terms, but we're not fundamentally our minds and our bodies are the same cave person minds and bodies that we've always been we're essentially neolithic hardware and we're trying to sort of run over sort of software of the 21st century and um you know it's no wonder that we crash from time to time and it's basically i i'm saying we're not encouraged to be mindful or aware of how we interact with the modern technological age and it's not just about the internet it's about tv it's about netflix it's about staying up too late it's about um working weekends it's about not having those sort of spaces in our lives where we can just sort of be you know i think of the most um telling marketing slogan of all time was the nike one just do it which sort of feels like carpe diem and uh, empowering but actually you know it it's a focus on activity and it's a focus on restlessness and it's a focus on you know consumerism and actually we're encouraged all the time to be active and finding solutions by going out and grasping things and often we're not encouraged to just sort of switch off and to just be rather than to just do you know I think that's a more nuanced position too than in, in my circles we get the people who hold the Luddite position who is like, you know, it's essentially holier, better if you, if you don't do it at all and yet oh, yeah, yeah. your position is much more about this is, we've just got to be smart about the way we're using it be, be aware of what effect this is having on us. Absolutely. I'd be totally hypocritical to say, to wag my finger and like a sort of Victorian moralist and say, 
oh no, this is all bad for you and stay away. A, it would be useless because we're, you know, if the genie's out of the bottle, we're not going to reverse time. You know, we're, we're all, um, most of us are on some kind of social media. We're all interacting. We all watch TV. We, you know, I'm, we can't go back in time. And I'm not sure that we'd want to. But what I am saying is that we don't talk enough about the effects, the good effects or the bad effects of it because we're not quite progressed enough in understanding mental health as health and how our minds are affected by, you know, even if, even if you just look at one area like sleep, sleep is scientifically known to be good for us, to be good for our physical and mental well-being and for certain things about modern life which are causing us to sleep in different ways and sleep differently. So even at that sort of basic level, it's having some kind of health effect. I think it's having other effects too. And being aware of that is often a solution because, you know, when we're aware of things to do with physical health, we, we can make changes and we can understand things. And I think particularly so with mental health because one of the things that used to make me feel really bad and keep me stuck in a sort of suicidal despair is feeling that there was no connection to how I lived. You know, when people say, oh, what do you have to be depressed about? That's such an annoying question because <laughs> you don't know. You know, there's often not a reason or not a single reason that you can see. Mm. So any little connection you can find to things that make you feel better or make you feel worse in life is, is itself a kind of therapy because it shows that you're connected to the world and how you live and that you've got a degree of control over it. So anything that you discover to be cultural is um, beneficial because then you think if it's cultural, it's something that's changeable. Yes. It's uh, some very practical stuff that, that I think it's bizarre how this hasn't been looked at, by which I mean, um, you know, as you mentioned in the session we've just been at here at the Writers' Festival, uh, we are aware that if we smoke or drink too much or, or eat the bad foods, that this will have a negative effect on our physical health. Yet we mightn't be aware of the fact that maybe going to bed with our phones or, or similar things could also have a negative effect on our health. Do you think people are waking up to this now? Is it Are these practical things starting to get some of the attention? They're starting to. I mean, it's, certainly we're at a point now um, in the UK and I, I think Australia too where people are willing more to talk about mental health issues. And people, you know, when I was ill, first ill, it was 20 years ago and, you know, Although I was aware of terms like depression and anxiety, I had no understanding, whereas I think that's different now. Um, I still don't think we, we take them seriously enough. I mean, if you look at the sort of suicide figures for men uh, and young men, you know, the, the age shifts around. But like in the UK at the moment, it's the leading cause of death for men under the age of 45. I think it's possibly similar here. And... Um, you know, and that's a cultural thing. Suicide rates fluctuate, not just between genders, but between countries, between different eras. And so it's something we can do something about. So again, there's a positive there. You know, um, suicide is preventable, but it might require some sort of cultural shifting um, for that to happen. And um, I, I think, like, people, people are a bit reluctant to talk about mental health um, and think about mental health in the same way as physical health. And I think one of the reasons is 
that we like to believe we're in control of our minds in a way that we accept we're not in control of our bodies because the bodies provide too much evidence that we're not in control of them. Um, but with, with our minds, because it's tied to our idea of identity and our personalities, we like, you know, we, we like to believe, if we're someone who's never been mentally ill before, it's nice to believe, well, I'm not the sort of person who'd be like that. I'm tough enough. I've been through stuff. I, I've had my own version of depression and got over it. And so it's nice, but I, I feel like that line we put between mental and physical is such a such an ambiguous and such a false one really it's i think one day we almost look like 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 the four humors or something i think it's so um artificial and negligible i I think so much of mental illness is physical i mean even if you think mental illness is just about the brain the brain is a physical organ and it's dependent on the rest of the body and so many of my symptoms were sort of below the neck symptoms and uh, the question i was is like if you've got say a bad back because of stress, which you sometimes diagnose with. Is that a mental health problem or is that a physical health problem? You know, I have tinnitus, so I have ringing in my ears. That's made worse when I think about it, but it is also a physical problem. So it's physical and mental. So much of health mm. is physical and mental. You can hallucinate with flu or a fever, you know. It's all a grey area. Yeah, it's much more holistic than we yeah, view it Yeah, absolutely. As. You know, and that's often seen as a quite a hippy-dippy word, but I think like a, a properly r- rigorous, scientific kind of holistic approach would yeah. be the mm. way forward. Uh, I, I just want to have a, a brief chat about, I guess, where our world is and, and how we got here, because about a decade ago, we were introduced to the smartphone um, alongside the boom of social media. And I guess the promise, you know, alongside all these other things of FaceTime and whatever yeah. else came with it, dating apps the promise was we would be more connected as a species than ever before yeah um and here we are a decade on and (laughs) we're in the epidemic of loneliness absolutely Um, what the hell happened yeah and the interesting thing about loneliness you know originally when people were talking about the epidemic of loneliness they're saying oh it's because people are living longer and living on their own longer but actually the highest rates of loneliness are reported among teenagers and millennials and the the sort of like hyper connected ends of society Mm. so loneliness as a thing is is a kind of new concept as something that's separate to aloneness you know there's a, being alone and there's being lonely and sometimes we can be alone and not actually feel lonely and actually want to be alone but then sometimes we can be in a massively crowded room or with our 5,000 Facebook friends or whatever and feel absolutely totally lonely so I think this idea of this feeling of loneliness is definitely something that's there and it's paradoxical because I think that feeling is also what's pr- um, keeps us addicted to social media and, and the social networking because that, that, that offers the promise of connection, but it's never entirely fulfilling because it's never entirely us. I mean, you know, like, you know, the famous Magritte painting of the pipe. That isn't a pipe. You know, like a painting of a pipe is never going to be the pipe. So in, a, in the same sort of way, our online profiles are never quite us. Yeah. Not, we are physical beings and it, it's always one step removed from us. So any connection we're making, it's always slightly a presentation. Mm. It's sort of like editing a magazine of ourselves. So it's slightly removed, I feel. And that's all well and good if we're sort of aware of that. But it's when we become, when those lines become a bit too blurred and we're, we're spending so much of our lives in this sort of digital nowhere land um, that we start to lose sight of ourselves or believe our own online oh, presentations of ourselves and it and it and it's also that thing of also imagining everyone else's life is better than ours because they're doing the same thing as we are and they're presenting their best bits and 
they're doing the things that get the most likes and the sort of big celebrations and wedding anniversaries and job promotions or great holidays somewhere mm. and we're not seeing what's behind that we're seeing that so we, we can feel like we can have continual fear of missing out because we're we've always been surrounded by people but now we see so many different it's lives stop, in front yeah. of us so we can always gravitate towards the best ones or the best looking ones or the people who seem to have it all worked out I actually wonder if there's a parallel there with, you know, I think about in Australia, our suburban backyards, the great suburban spread we have, and our suburban backyards and, and front yards are famous for that sort of facade. We put up our fences, we make the garden look great, and yet we seem to be increasingly lonely with that kind of urban presentation. Mm. I'd actually be interested in your idea about, um, and I'll flesh this out a little more, I, had, I was at a, at a um, gathering recently where someone was saying, oh, they just didn't have time um, to get involved in some of these community causes, some of these social justice causes, because they also knew that their family was so important, giving time to their wife, to their children, yeah. that was so important, and they didn't have time. Their private time was taking up so much, they had no time for the public mm. communal time. And someone else said, but family is public, marriage is public. And I thought that was such an interesting thing to say. And I, to me, it seemed to speak into a bit of that facade that we keep up privately and as against the idea of living more communally, of being open, and maybe we could parallel yeah. it with the facade on whether it's on Instagram or Facebook of the way we present ourselves, but we're actually not sharing ourselves. I wonder, any comments on, on that? Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I think that issue of time as well, of not having the time, is, is just a continual feeling, whatever it is. We always feel like we're behind the time with work, with our social lives, or whether or with, I don't read books because I haven't got the time, I don't do this because I haven't got the time, I don't. And, and we all feel this lack of time, even though, you know, technically we're all on average living longer we've got more time in the day we've got more time saving devices you know we don't have to be the sort of um you know 1950s housewife idea of you know ha having to spend all our time doing domestic duties. we've got all these time saving devices all the time but we've got no more time than we ever had for anything and um i feel like definitely um Thing, thing, things are different and things like communicating with a family is often um, different but often that has a you know often that's like via smartphone or you know so so it's often on the move doing some so we're always like one foot somewhere and one foot somewhere else to, to have the time to devote our entire attention to another human being becomes harder because we feel we've all got this feeling that our demands are spread out more and mm. um you know i've noticed just in my sort of working career how the weekend is no longer a sacred space you know you get emails you know if, if you have traditionally been off on a weekend you you'll get sort of work emails and even on a sunday and expected to get back to things and stuff and um those spaces those literal spaces but also those psychological spaces we're, we're sort of losing even though you know we've effectively got as much time as we've ever had there is that famous quote that comparison is the thief of joy, which you use in your yeah. book. And um, uh, the, the, a part of Notes on a Nervous Planet that really stood out to me was you're writing about um, the restlessness of, of choice, how we you'll never be able to read every book. So by nature of reading one book, you've excluded all the other options. And it's almost like by living one life, you've excluded all the other options. And instead of actually doing that now we kind of live in this in-between space where we're splintered into a thousand lives yes it's almost the equivalent you know like with netflix where you you you, you spend more time choosing what to watch yes. than actually watching <laughs> yeah and there's some research done with this about choice and i think that's the core of a problem where we all feel a bit sort of paralyzed and blocked 
like I think it's one of these big owners of lots of brands like Unilever or something they did some research in a supermarket this isn't in the book, but basically they, 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 they took shampoos and, and they did a, a test on an aisle where they had um, a display of three different varieties of shampoo. And then another part of the store, they had like 27 varieties of shampoo and they sold far more shampoos from the aisle where there was only three than the one was 27 because when people are overloaded mm. with choice and difference and options and all these things that we're told are good you know it's good to have choice choice is a good thing but actually when you have so much it becomes sort of paralyzing so actually often the solution is just like stripping back just concentrating on the life you have and not always wishing and whether it's like reality tv like do you have do you have the x factor in australia yeah um you know always it's about you know being saved from the life you're in by something else whether it's fame or money or whatever and and like uh, i don't mind those sort of reality tv shows but there's this idea that um you're you're being saved from ordinariness you know it's like salvation from just an ordinary (laughs) life and the back of the backstory is always here 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 here's jenny on a bus looking out the window (laughs) on the way to her grand's house it's like well why not why not actually worship that that's an amazing thing to be a healthy human being alive on earth just doing yes. that and singing for pleasure and it's not about your big record deal but you know and we're, we're always encouraged that we to believe we're not quite enough we need something else and there's these magic gatekeepers who can grant us that that's such a good point i think with all of those reality shows it's almost like once the, their time on the show begins, now their life is worthwhile. Or if they win, sorry, it becomes yeah, worthwhile yeah, 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 yeah. when they do the national tour. But beforehand, <laughs> it's almost like a look how bad this was. Yeah. And now we've, we've made it worthwhile. Yeah, and it's in everything. You know, you get it in, in, in publishing, you know, like, like before. Because like, I've been struggling writer and now in the UK, relatively successful bestseller writer. And, you know, we're encouraged to believe that's such a difference. And like also the difference between being before you're published when you hear people getting six-figure deals and stuff and it's like you know it's these are nice things i'm not moaning about them but they're not the central essence of life you know it's nice add-ons to it <laughs> but unless you know what's really important is is how your mind feels how, who you love in life who loves you and wh- what you appreciate in life and we're often encouraged to want the wrong things i mean i don't know how many super famous megastars we're going to have to see go off the rails or tell us this isn't the answer or who literally end their lives sometimes and um you know obviously they've got lots of material things and they can be perfectly happy being super famous sometimes but it's not the answer to any problems it's clearly not the answer actually you used the word i loved it in the book you used it at least once but i think the concept sort of overrode the idea of cherishing life yeah and that cherishing the life that you have and the amazing gifts that can come out of that i just thought it was a, it was a beautiful note and something that um you know we talk about a lot how do you actually embrace the life you have how do you live who you are and mm. cherish the life and the people you have so yeah I, yeah I thought it was a lovely thing to come through and it's like this reverse mindfulness we've all got where we're encouraged to sort of live in the future as well and as we're encouraged from like school age you know the education system um is great i'm from a family of teachers but it's encouraged furthermore certainly in the uk now where we've got so many tests at every age an increasing amount of tests uh, it's always about not where you are now, not learning for knowledge's own sake, but what is going to get you in a test, what is going to get you in an exam, what university you're going to, what job you're going to end up in. So uh, as children, we're encouraged to sort of live in the future, not sort of embrace our 
childhood which could potentially be the best years of our life but always to sort of be mm. useful for what we're going to be rather than what we are that, that of course is that you're, you're talking to someone who works at a church and so that's our besetting sin is that you you know despite having having a, a jesus who talked about kingdom on earth yeah. you know we've got all this caught up in what's going to happen in the future and lost our way you know and so whether it's education whether it's heaven whether it's you know, there's so many things that we start to project forward and say look if we, once we get there that's the answer and it actually takes us away from cherishing life now I think it's a famous Alan Watts quote, um, what is the use of living for the future if when you get there, you won't be there because you'll be living in the next future? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and it's very hard. I think, you know, that's, I, I, I've never been any other animal other than a human being, but I feel like that is a, a slightly human problem where we, we don't exist in the present and i think all these sort of fashionable trends whether it's for mindfulness or meditation or whatever i think i think that's a sort of like a response to that it's like an understanding that we're not um we're not being thankful enough or grateful enough and just relaxed enough to enjoy the present moment we're always encouraged to believe we're not enough in the present, uh, we, we've got to work for it. We've got to work for more money, and there'll be some magical pot at the end of the rainbow where we um, can just sort of relax forever and f- find the solution. But we, we we never quite get there. And you you see all these successful, driven people, um, you know, the American president being the most famous example. And, and, and they, they never seem to reach a point where they say, "Oh, that's it. I'm at this point of satisfaction. I'm just going to, I'm just going to sort of sit in the Himalayas now forever and just sort of, you know, be fine with what I've got." It's always you know, it, it it seems to operate like an addiction, doesn't it? An addiction to whatever it is, money, power, fame, the next thing. It's uh, it's almost like a well that every time you drink from it, you're more thirsty afterwards yes. and you keep going back. So how do we escape? How do we... You've mentioned, um, you know, that in a world that is designed to depress us, living as a calm person is a revolutionary act, I think is a quote of yours. So how do we, how do we start the revolution? Well, I think, you know, it's almost like... Um, you know, alco- the 12 steps on Alcoholics Anonymous, the first step is awareness. And I think that's the key key step. You can't do anything when you're in a sort of state of denial. So I think the first step, you know, at a broad cultural, social level, but also a personal level is sort of being aware of things and just sort of tuning into how they affect you and how much time you're doing that. And I always think, and it's a bit of a bleak thought, but, you know, if I die doing this, would I be happy dying doing this? <laughs> Is this something that I'd, are we ever going to be on our deathbed thinking, oh, I just wish I got back to more emails or I wish I'd, you know, uh, I wish I'd sent a really viral tweet or, you know, are these things <laughs> important? No, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, I know one of the... the deepest human temptations i guess that all societies i think have struggled with is thinking they are at the end of history that mm. we are the ones who figured it out we've cracked it everyone yeah. else were idiots but this is it we've yeah, we've yeah, solved yeah, it yeah. now Absolutely. obviously that isn't the case so you know as a bit of a hypothetical matt how do you reckon um the human race in 100 years or 200 years will look back at at us and this civilization um I think this will definitely be a key time. I feel like we're in the equivalent of like the Industrial Revolution or the Agricultural Revolution. I think the sort of digital information revolution is going to be one of those key transformative points. I hope we don't all turn into these sort of perfect cyborgs who have everything solved for us because I think that would psychologically create a lot of problems. Um, 
I, I, I think they will sort of look back and, and see that our division between sort of the physical and mental will be uh, very anachronistic and that will be sort of seen as ridiculous. I hope that we'll sort of be at a better place with mental health. I feel like we're still, with mental health, still in the dark ages really um, at the moment. And I hope people are some talking about it and I hope, you know, like things like suicide sort of go down and all of that stuff. Um, but... I, I think it's also a period of awakening because I feel like we're, we're slowly starting to be aware of um, how our minds feel and how important that is. I mean, what's really important than how we and how other people feel? You know, we're encouraged as societies to concentrate on economics and, you know, countries are measured in terms of GDP and progress is often measured in technological progress. And those things are important and that's sort of how societies run but I feel we've pursued that at the expense of well-being and at the expense of you know kindness and kindness to other people but also kindness to ourselves and just being a, a you know getting our priorities a little bit wrong and I feel like we're slowly raising our heads out of the sands and being a little bit more aware of that. I imagine um, as a successful author yourself there'd be a lot of people who you know everyone's got that ambition uh, in some area of their life and there'd be young writers who'd look at you and think, geez, if I had sold as many books as Matt Haig, then I'd be happy. That would be that yeah. would be their belief. What would you say to that? Well, I'd just say I, I was that person. And I'm, I'm like, I, there's always in a, another goalpost. And when I'm in my sort of weaker, more sort of addicted, anxious moments, you know, it, it doesn't matter what you've um, achieved. There's always another thing because your, your brains don't really change. So, for instance... I, I, I used to say when I was trying to get a book deal, I will be grateful forever if I see my name in print on the front of a book and I've gone a book and some people are reading my thoughts and that's all I want as a writer to be read. And that lasts about two months and then there's <laughs> something else and then it's about getting the next book deal and then you, you get an option for a film and then you say, I'm not going to be happy unless a film is made. Then you get a, a bestseller and you think, I'm not gonna, I, I, I want to be number one and there, there's always something else or you want to be big in America or Australia or something. So there's always something else. So the only way, you know, I would absolutely encourage a writer to write and um, but still the enjoyment I get from writing remains the same and it sounds really cheesy and corny but the enjoyment from writing is from writing mm. and that's the thing that's it. and I think if you lose sight of that A you'll become a worse writer but B um, you'll become unhappier I mean I think the you know it's the same with um, you know singing a song it, you know singing is enjoyable in its own sake and I think all these sort of reality TV shows often think that it, it, it's to do something else but music and art and writing they're pleasure in itself you know it's not always about what it can get you obviously you need to live and it's nice to have an, an income and all of that but beyond a certain point it becomes kind of meaningless once you've got the roof over your head and the running water and not having to worry where the next meal comes from then it's the then it becomes a sort of law of diminishing returns I think um, a famous Jerry Seinfeld quote is uh, he speaks about um, falling in love with the craft. People asked him, you know, he's one of the richest, you know, yeah. entertainers in the world and he still writes stand-up and does stand-up and people are like, why? You don't need to anymore. Yeah. No one else does. But he said he fell in love with the craft, which is quite a rare thing in yeah. entertainment. No, absolutely. And it's so, it's so nice to see that, yeah, because they normally cross over into 
making bad films or something. Really. <laughs> yeah, <that's> it. <laughs> it's a normal career model. Chasing more money. <laughs> so so the, 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 I guess it's reviewing the yeah. longing, the unhappiness, that it's not coming from a lack of something. It's no. coming from a, a, a different way of seeing. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I feel like we're encouraged to feel we're not enough, but we are. I mean, no one looks at a newborn baby and sees a lack you know, and they've got no material things on them. They've got no job. They've got no title. They're not professor of anything. But we don't <laughs> see a lack. And yet we're encouraged in later years to sort of feel that lack. So I feel like if we could somehow treat ourselves, remember that we're just these sort of grown-up babies, these human beings who had everything when they were born in some ways. They had all we needed. And um, yes, we all live in the real world. We do need to work. We do need to interact with technology. But to have that sense of kindness to ourselves and that to realize that everything we need we have already and mm. we don't need to feel insufficient or inadequate i don't think our culture is geared at all towards allowing ourselves to be kind i think that lack yeah. of self-kindness is such a huge piece of the puzzle you know there's so much that comes at us that would that make us unkind to ourselves. you know and i i've just spent a week out in the desert in alice springs oh wow um, which was fantastic <laughs> yeah, i want to go to alice springs. yeah you should it's a beautiful place it'll it'll get under your skin and you'll want to yeah. go back again particularly if you spend a bit of time like i did just wandering around the desert and um the the folks who live there in an intentional community out there that i went to spend some silent retreat time with said you know you may not come out of the desert knowing exactly what you want to do in life, but gee, you're aware of your own temptations. You're aware of the things that are hurting you. Um, and you're, you're aware you're of those ego trips that you go down, all of that because it's, it's so, so broad and vast. It's yeah. like it's all really exposed. So I guess I wonder, what do you do to be aware when you think about you know, having the next successful book or the, or the next goal that comes up? What are, what are the things that help you to refocus on maybe the joy of the craft or, or just of what's most important? Um, yeah, well, weirdly, you know, uh, certainly with writing, um, I very rarely get an idea while I'm staring at a computer. You know, it's normally when I'm switched off and not actually in work mode. You know, the best things actually come. Um, you know, I, I certainly think with anything creative, um, the best things come when you, you treat it as play rather than work and when you're just sort of having fun and remembering the joy of it. And so... I really value in life, uh, well, A, like family time and being with the people who love, like I've, I've even dragged my um, family on tour with me here, which is <laughs> quite nice, I'm enjoying it. But um, I, I, I really, you know, I, I do my work things, I do my work commitments, but it's about having a life and it's about seeing things. And it's often, like I love travel, I love travel, but I think the reason I love travel is because it's a way of... Um, taking you out of yourself you know so you're not um swamped by the sort of worries and anxieties you're encouraged to have because you've got new external surroundings it's very easy i suppose when you're in the same surroundings all the time to to ignore where you are in the world and just sort of become neurotic so actually when you're uh, traveling you're sort of forced to be external so being in australia here with my family is part of my <laughs> part of my process um Matt, if you had five minutes with the 18-year-old Matt Haig right now, what would you say to him? Well, <laughs> I'd give him a long talk. I, I'd basically, um, well, I'd basically tell him it's all going to be all, all right because that was something I, I, I increasingly didn't believe in and that I would be okay. And I, all of those pressures you have on you at 18 and what university you're going to write life has a way of just sort of straightening itself out somehow you know if you just ho hold on long enough it doesn't you know the things that seem so intense at that time like 
whether you're going to get an A grade or whether you're going to go to the university that's the most prestigious or whatever it is, um, it matters massively in the moment, but 20 years later, whatever happened or didn't happen, it will feel like fate. It will feel like it was meant to be and, and good things will have come out of it. You'll have met people that you either fell in love with or liked or had amazing conversations with because of your failures as much as your successes. So it's all part of a big picture. And if there are people listening in right now who uh, maybe are struggling with some of the things you have, uh, depression or anxiety or, or you know the, the cocktail of any mental health problems, what would your words to them be in the midst of it? Um, well, firstly, it, it is horrible. It is intense. It's a terrible thing to go through. But you're not alone. I mean, you're literally not alone in the sense that so many millions of people are literally going through something like that now. And the immediate people around you might not be able to understand that, that there are people out there who would understand that. And also to understand that it's temporary. I mean, by its nature, our minds shift and change and have their own weather systems. Even if someone is ill forever, you don't stay at that flat state of illness forever. But when you're in you know, the metaphor, you're, when you're in the bottom of the valley, you really have got no view and you, you, you do lose that sense of perspective. So the important thing to do is to try and understand the thing that the illness doesn't want you to understand and that is life um, changes, life goes on. In 10 years time, you will be someone slightly different to who you are now. You'll be feeling different things in a year from now. You know, you, you'll just have to sort of trust that future self because when I was at my very lowest life-threatening state um, it was that lack of belief that I would be someone else and the, the thing I was you're doing it for other people but the real other people you're doing it for is those other versions of you that you're going to be that you haven't been yet and it's hard to see that sometimes but it's there. I think you made a really important point. We, we were lucky enough to sit in on a conversation you just had here at the Bowen Writers Festival and you made the point that many people describe uh, suicide as selfish, as a selfish act. And for many people listening here, they will have often have relatives who have been suicidal or have suicided. They've encountered it in some way in their own life. And that, that sort of... that claim of it being selfish comes up and I, I agree I think it's highly damaging when you actually talk to suicidal people what you discover is that there's this terrible disjuncture they actually you know can think that it would be better off the world would be better off without them when you when mm. you know very well how treasured and loved they are so there's this kind of disconnect between the truth um, and what they actually experience. So I think it was important you said that. Yeah, and time is the weapon against that. I mean, like, sometimes just holding... I used to build up time almost like money, you know. I'd be like, oh, 22 days, 23 days. Uh, and, and, like, when I was first ill in a state of total panic, I didn't think I'd make it through the day, let alone the week, let alone the year. And then you build up things, and then, then life surprises you simply by holding on sometimes. And I certainly didn't believe I'd be here at 25, let alone 43 um, in Australia with this career or doing, doing anything like this. And so I didn't think Andrea would still be by my side, my partner, and all of this stuff. So life has a way of um, surprising you and disbelieving you. So however strong and intense and real the voices of depression are, but the voice of depression is not necessarily you any more than you are asthma or you are arthritis. It's a, it's a condition, it's something you have, and it's a condition that changes and evolves and shifts. You are a father of two young children who are, uh, you know, growing up in this world, in this culture. Um, with, I guess, what you know about this culture and how it's um, designed to, you know, to make you feel not enough and not good enough, 
how do you prepare your children to enter it? How, uh, I imagine that's probably one of your biggest yeah. concerns. Yeah, I mean, well, we're very lucky in a privileged position. I mean, we we homeschool our children. That's one thing. So we we and we live in a place called Brighton on the south coast of England, where there's 800 children who are homeschooled. So it, there's lots of groups, and we pick and choose, and we've got reasonable, you know, to a degree control over certain issues um but yeah i mean it's an incredibly fast-paced um stressful technological world they are entering and even at 10 and 9 years old they are starting to you know want things and crave things and get obsessed with technology and stuff like that and it's it's a constant balance and really this generation they are the guinea pigs because these are the first people to um grown up with it absolutely as the norm from the get-go you know in a totally technologically driven society but I feel like uh, there's a great quote from Astrid Lundgren who wrote Pippi Longstocking a children's great children's author she said um, you know give the children love and more love and the common sense will look after itself so we just try and you know give them that love (laughs) and hopefully you know that will be enough because I, I feel, feel like you, you can never know there's a million different parental guidebooks and handbooks out there offering conflicting advice so you never know and you try and correct your own mistakes that you, you think were made by your parents and then you end up making new mistakes and it's an <laughs> ongoing cycle of parenthood and life but um, I, I, I like to believe getting corny again that love will save us so that's enough well, uh, look, just to as a way of wrapping up, I thought um, to, to ground this a bit, some practical ways people can look after their mental health and stay yep. sane in this world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a, a few quotes of yours that I've picked up over the years, which I particularly love. Um, one is that three in the morning is never the time to try to sort out your life. Um, is a mistake I have made far too many I times. I made it last night. I Did you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I think I've applied for so many jobs at three in the morning or whatever yeah, and then yeah. woken up the next day and thought, what did I agree to? <laughs> that was a mistake. Um, uh, you've, uh, you say goals are the source of misery. An unattained goal causes pain, but actually achieving it only brings a brief satisfaction, which we touched on. Um, if there is a sunset, stop and look at it. Knowledge is finite. Uh, wonder is infinite, which is just uh, beautiful there. Um, and uh, also, you can't find happiness looking for the meaning of life. Meaning is only the third most important thing. It comes after loving and being, uh, which is a, a beautiful quote as well, Matt. Um, and one last one is I do know that you also uh, keep your phone. You mentioned this, and this is, this is such a small one, but this is so pivotal that you stopped having your phone next to your bed. Yes, um, yeah, when I'm at home, I charge my phone in the kitchen because um, at least then I have to sort of get out of bed, have breakfast, you know, be in tune with my circadian rhythms of life. And um, yeah, because I, it's so easy these days to sort of have your phone as your alarm and then you get up and then you sort of like scroll through the news and Twitter and Facebook and emails and everything else. So just having that time away of just being ourselves rather than this sort of distracted digitized version of ourselves I think is more important than ever I think books are a, 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 a good retreat as well for that you know to sort of even though books are technology they have a sort of 5,000 year old tried and tested technology <laughs> which we all quite 
um, need from time to time. Absolutely. And one last tip from me, go and buy a Matt Haig book. It is, uh, it's been a massive gift for me, your writing, Matt. I think, um, I think How to Stop Time is possibly my all-time favourite book. So oh, wow. Well, thank you so much. For major that. gift. And thank you so much for writing. And thank you so much for chatting with us it's on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was really lovely. Thank uh, you, Matt. We'll be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.